The rest of us are going to be in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. So I want to invite you to turn in your scriptures to Acts chapter 20. Um, we, have, we always provide Bibles on the table when you come in, and today we're going to be on page 774. If you've grabbed a Bible, you can still grab a Bible. If you don't have one, that's what they're there for. And if you brought your electronic Bible, that's awesome. On January 14, 2014, 26-year-old Ken Huang died after he fell into the Huang, a visitor from St. Paul, Minnesota, dropped his cell phone uh, while taking pictures of the river below. His cell phone landed on an uh, ice-covered portion of the river. He climbed over the railing to retrieve his phone when he fell into the river. Then, one of his friends, Lorene Lee, dropped down to the ice to rescue him. She fell into the water also. When she yelled for help, their friend, Fan Huang, sought to come, in to, come onto the ice as well, and he slipped into the river. Ken Huang was pronounced dead at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Laroon Lee's body was not recovered for two days. 23-year-old Fan Huang was hospitalized and released. He wrote later on Facebook, Life's too short. I hope no one would ever have to go through something so unfortunate as what happened to us. The day after the tragedy, NBC Chicago was interviewing people about what happened. And a young woman said this, I guess I can understand the impulse. Your cell phone is part of you. We are kind of tied to it. But it's only a cell phone. To risk your life is incredible. Three people risked their lives for a cell phone in the Chicago River. Would you risk your life for a cell phone? I probably know how most of you would answer. A better question is, What would you risk your life for if you had the choice? What would you risk your life for? Or for whom would you risk your life? Would you risk your life? Today we're going to catch up with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 in the midst of his third missionary journey. Let's see the map. Where we left, yep, this is where we left Paul. So, third missionary journey, all three missionary journeys started in Antioch in Syria, Gentile church, and uh, he goes through uh, Galatia, and he ends up at Ephesus, and that's where we left him in Acts 19. And if you remember, there was a riot there because uh, the gospel was having such an impact that it was affecting the silver trade and the silversmiths were up in the arms because people weren't buying the silver trinkets of Artemis, the goddess, and they weren't making any money. And so they were very angry at Paul. So we come to Acts chapter 20. Let's look at the first six verses. I want to read them. version that we have on the table, it's slightly different. Here we go. Verse 1. When the uproar had ended, that is the riot in Ephesus, 
Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through the area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece. This is the part that makes me tired. Where he stayed three months, because the Jews made a plot against him just as he was about to sail for Syria. He decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopatir, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. How did I do? Okay. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but, when, but we, catch the we, we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And five days later, joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Who's counting? Luke, the historian, the writer of the book of Acts. The extensive travel, verses 1 through 6. And why the extensive travel? What's the big deal here? I mean, that doesn't sound very efficient, you know, to travel so much because it costs a lot of money. The reason is what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Because Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Paul understood that. Now, going means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. For some of us, going means going to work on Monday and being an ambassador for Jesus on Monday, wherever we are. For some people, it means leaving the city. It means going to another state. It means going to another country, to a totally different environment. For Paul, this was all kind of virgin territory for the gospel. He was going to share for the very first time that Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for sin for all people. That was good news. The travel verses 1 and 2, when the uproar had ended that that ride in Ephesus, he sent for the disciples. He is in He's still in Ephesus, and he gathers the believers, the church in Ephesus, and he encourages them, and then he says goodbye. He goes to Macedonia, sets out for Macedonia, and uh, Macedonia is where Philippi and Thessalonica are located. He traveled through the area speaking many words, and we got a map for that, and encouraging people, and he finally arrived in Greece uh, where he stayed three months. So Paul heads out of Ephesus, right there kind of in the center, a little bit left. He goes up and he travels uh, to some of the places he's been before. And he's going to go to encourage the churches. So he's going to go to Macedonia. And that's where Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea are, churches that he has already planted. And he's returning in that area. The interruption in uh, verse 3 Because some Jews, and this was kind of common with Paul, had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria. So the Jews are the ethnic and religious Jews who see Paul as a heretic. They think he's trying to ruin everybody with the good news about Jesus. They think he's crazy. They think he's from the devil. And so they plot against him. And their plan is, Paul's going to go on a ship. We're going to sneak some people aboard. This would be the easiest thing to do. We're going to kill him and throw him overboard. And um, 
So uh, they plotted against him it was as he was about to sail. So he finds out about this. He's not going to go. He decided to go back through Macedonia. So uh, map three, yeah, here we go. So we're going backwards now. We, we've, uh, we're going back. So he plans to go through Macedonia. The team is verses four through six. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus Secundus. This is the team. Gaius from Derby, Timothy. This is the missions team. Tychicus and Trophimus. And these are all men, Greeks, uh, Gentiles, non-Jewish believers. And they all are representing churches from the area. Each one of these, sometimes two from the same church. And Luke doesn't tell us this detail, but we learn from 2 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 7, and Acts 24 that there is a purpose because Paul has already said he wants to go to Jerusalem. And one of his purposes, one of the big purposes, is to take a financial gift to the believers in Jerusalem because um, the Christians in Jerusalem are going to struggle big time financially because um, of the gospel and because they're being persecuted right in the heart of where Christ died and where the church got its start. So... um, Verse 6, but we sailed from Philippi. Did you catch the we? What is the significance of the we? There's a couple of you who know. It's Luke is back. Luke has been in Philippi the whole time. Luke, the writer, is now joining Paul again. It's been they or Paul, but now it's we. That means Luke is here. Uh, uh, Secondly, the tradition of long worship services. You were expecting this. There's biblical support for long worship services in verses 7 through 12. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. That was to have communion, to remember the Lord's death, to share the bread and the cup. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking till midnight. They did Sunday night church. It was the first day of the week. Now, this is revolutionary because the Jewish people work on worship on Saturday, the Sabbath. But Christians began worshiping sometime on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus was resurrected. This is the first mention in the Bible of the church worshiping on Sunday as the church. And so... Uh, He came to break bread with the people. He intended to leave the next day, and then he just kept talking until midnight. And then in verses 8 and 9, we have the early tradition of falling asleep in church. Most of you are still awake so far. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Now, Luke is the physician. He's pretty smart here. He knows there's going to be a problem with the lamps in the room. It's the third story. It's burning up all the oxygen in the room. It's warm up there. Seated in the window, verse 9, was a young man named Eutychus. And he was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. You ever felt like that in church? 
So uh, this is not a good situation. He's sitting in a window. He's blocking the airflow. And the lamps are burning. And the oxygen is getting reduced. And when he was sound asleep, verse 9, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Now Luke is a physician. He knows death when he sees it. Okay? There was a time that Paul was left for dead. Luke knew he wasn't dead. He was left for dead. But Luke knows this guy is dead. Verses 10 and 11, the dead in church are raised. Look at verse 10. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. What's going on here? By the way, this is what Elijah did in the Old Testament. This is what Elisha did in the Old Testament. Both times when people were raised from the dead, they lay their body over them. Maybe not the most comfortable position to be in. Uh, Paul uh, went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. And then he said, after he did this, don't be alarmed. He's alive. He's alive now because of the miracle, because he's been healed. He's been raised from the dead. Verse 11, then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. This is a long worship service. He stayed. They did communion first, and then they ate their meal together. And um, Paul talked, encouraged them, and, and uh, he, he was preparing them. He was giving last words, and um, he wanted to leave them in a good place. Verse 12, the survivors, the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Now, do you think uh, they were comforted because the service was over, finally, after all night? Or was it because of Paul's ministry, his ministry of the word, and um, his raising Eutychus from the dead? Okay, the training of leaders, verses 13 through 38, the travel, hard work. The travel, verse 13, we, Luke says, meaning he's there, went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. That's what I like about Luke. He just, he wants to say it right. He wants to be accurate. He wants to give you details. He doesn't always give you all the details. He gives us a capsule. Uh, But it's like, this isn't the most concise way or the, you know, the cleanest way to tell the story. He, um, so... We were going to take Paul aboard. He made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. So Paul doesn't want to go on the ship. He wants to go on foot. Now, but that's the way it happened. Why did Paul do this? I don't know. Did he want to be alone? Was it for his safety? Was there fear that there might be another attack on the ship? The next day, we, so Luke is still with them, set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after, we crossed over to Samos. And the following day, arrived at Miletus. It's it's hard work to be a missionary. Verse 16. Paul decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. He was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So, map 
just to catch up with Paul. We started out today in Ephesus. He went up to Macedonia, and uh, we know uh, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. And um, he went down to uh, Corinth. Let's see, make sure I'm at the right place. And now he's, he's uh, coming back. So the black, I think that's black. It's the darkest color that's returning from Tro- Troas down to Chios to Samos. And then we're going to go be at Miletus. All right. And uh, we don't know why he didn't want to go back to Ephesus. Probably because there was just a huge riot there. And maybe he feared for his life. Uh, maybe he knew it was going to be way too complicated to see all the believers there. He's got a layover for seven days. This wants to connect with the leaders there. And verse 17 and 18, we meet the leaders. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So with this layover that Paul has, he wants to connect with the leadership team at Ephesus. Uh, we're going to get a little uh, little perspective into Paul speaking with the leaders. This is the only one in the book of Acts where we see a, a time that he spends significant time with the leadership group. This is probably pretty common, the way Paul worked with churches and leadership. But Luke gives us sort of a, a longer view here of one of these times. Uh, verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them, So they have to come about 30 miles south of Ephesus to get to Troas. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came. You know, Paul was of Asia. So he begins by reminding them. You know, Paul was with them two to three years. And probably elders were identified very early in their training and... um, so Paul has been with them, and they've had a chance to watch his life, how he lived, um, how he walked with Christ, how he served them. And they were all uh, eyewitnesses to Paul's life. The reminder is verses 19 through 21. He said, I serve the Lord with great humility. This was a hallmark of the Apostle Paul. He wanted to be a humble, he sought to be a humble person. This is exactly what Jesus taught. Not to use authority to lord it over people, but to be a servant of others. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. So while he is at Ephesus, observed by the uh, elders of Ephesus, there were more than one plot to take his life by the Jews. Verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. So, you know, is this like a small group ministry, house to house, maybe? But more likely, these are probably house churches in the city of Ephesus. And these houses are probably, some of them, pretty large. So, Um, It wouldn't just be, you know, like eight or ten people. Some of these are probably 50 to 100. I don't know how big they were, but the homes, some of them would have been quite large. And Ephesus was a very large urban center, so to be scattered over the city wouldn't be 
uh, unlikely at all. He says he's not hesitated to proclaim the truth. Verse 21, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. He's talking about proclaiming the gospel. He says um, they must turn to God in repentance, must turn from something to God, must turn from an old life to God, must turn from the position of unbelief to the position of belief and trust in what God has said about his son, Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross, that he paid the penalty for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day, And what a lot of people overlook in our world today about what Christianity believes, he, Jesus Christ, is alive and well and sits at the right hand of God today. He's a living Savior. He's not a dead leader. So Paul says, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks. Um, I I declared to my own countrymen, Paul says. I, I, I declared to those people like me who were Jewish in ethnicity and in, in their religion, and they had the Old Testament scriptures. And then I also took the gospel to those outside of the Jewish world, to Gentiles. And uh, I was very open and, and announced God's love and God's forgiveness through Jesus to everyone. The task, verse 22 through 24, and now compelled by the Spirit. So Paul is telling him the leader's that it is the Holy Spirit. It is God who is leading him. I'm going to Jerusalem. God is directing me to go to Jerusalem. And, and the book of Acts is going to make a turn here. It's been turning. Um, Jesus, in his ministry, set his face to go to Jerusalem to die. And um, there's little, little uh, glimpses in the gospel accounts of how Jesus was headed this way and, and then the story came in and, and people, he encountered people and the gospel writers record it. But then Jesus gets back on track and he continues to head to Jerusalem. And this is what's happening to Paul. He is turning toward Jerusalem for his final trip. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Paul won't be crucified in Jerusalem, but it'll be his final trip And it'll be significant. Compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Uh, I don't know. He says, I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. How encouraging is that? Prison and hardships. You just walk with Jesus, prison and hardships. Sad thing is, too. I mean, the truth is, if you don't walk with Jesus, there's going to be prison and hardships. And here's what I love about Paul, verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. What is your life worth to you? Is it worth a cell phone? What is, what is your life worth to you? Is it worth nothing to you? Is it worth the gospel to you? Apostle Paul is all in. His life belongs to Jesus Christ. He has offered his body as a living sacrifice. 
willing to give himself totally to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to follow him. Jesus is the master. Paul is the servant. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul wants to honor Jesus and finish his life well. Be an ambassador. He knows what the task is. He wants to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. He wants to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to offer reconciliation to all people. What is your aim in life? What are you living for? Where do you want your life to go? When you get to the end, what do you hope would have happened? Paul speaks of his task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. He understood his purpose. The charge he gives to the leadership is verses 25 through 32. He says, now I know that none of you, he's talking to the elders, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Paul's saying, you know what? I'm not coming this way again. I'm not coming back to Ephesus. I am innocent of the blood of any of you. I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, the whole counsel of God. Paul says, my conscience is clear before God. I have done the things that God has asked me to do. It's to be an ambassador for him and to communicate the gospel. And I am not responsible. Um, He says, I'm innocent of the blood of anybody. Uh, Verse 28, this is to the leaders. Keep watch over yourselves. Pay attention to your own life. Pay attention to how you live. Pay attention to your spiritual walk with Christ. Uh, Walk carefully. This is both individually, you watch over your own life, but it's also corporately. He's talking to the leaders here, and he's saying, Watch over each other. Care for each other. Love each other. Help each other be accountable. Do it as a team. Don't just be a lone wolf. Do it as a team. Help each other. Keep watch over yourselves. Keep walking with Jesus. Stay on the course. Verse 28, And all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseer is one of those words that is used interchangeably for elder. Overseer uh, comes from the Gentile context, the non-Jewish context. The the Greek word is episkopos. I only say that because that's where we get the word episcopal. It means bishop. It means superintendent. So an overseer's job here speaks of watching over, overseeing. Includes managing. The word for elder is presbuteros, and the word is Presbyter, and it's the elder term comes from the Jewish background, and it focuses a little more on maturity. It sort of assumes some physical maturity. The church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Be a shepherd, and he's using the metaphor of shepherds and sheep, and uh, 
Shepherds, are, they oversee the flock. The flock refers to the church, to the believers in Christ. And he's talking about the leaders, the elders in Ephesus overseeing the church in Ephesus. And uh, they are to care for their church family. They're to lead their church family. Um, they're to feed God's word, to feed them spiritually, provide spiritual food for the church. They are to provide discipline, order for the church, uh, instruction. They are to protect the church, protect the church from things that come from the outside, protect the church from the evil one, uh, warn the church of danger. And the church is God's church. The church is not the leader's church. It doesn't belong to the Ephesians elder, elders. It belongs to God, purchased by the blood of him. Verse 29, I know after I leave, Paul says, after I leave, um, and you, you go back to Ephesus, savage wolves, so the metaphor continues, will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And the imagery of savage wolves are those who are false teachers who will come in and harm the flock and seek to distort the truth and teach things that will... Take the, take the flock off course of following Jesus. And uh, people that are maybe nice people with good intentions. And you know what really, you know, what I see in our culture today in the church is we just like nice people. And we'll almost believe whatever nice people say. And the question is, what does the scriptures say? What does is, what is the scripture, what do they teach? And that's what's important. It's what God's word. It's not what... I think it's what the scripture say. And we need to evaluate ideas in our world in light of scripture. And leaders are responsible for the sake of the church. Verse 30, even from your own number, men will arise, arise and distort the truth. He's saying even people from the church in Ephesus, people with good intentions are going to come and they're going to bring ideas that, that, aren't, that don't align with truth. And they're going to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard, he tells the leaders. Remember, for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Uh, it's a great reminder how important sound doctrine is to us as a church. Verse 32, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst among all those who are sanctified. Paul commends them to God and to God's grace and to the word of his grace. And he's talking about God's word and how God's word can build up people. Sometimes, you know, we get the idea that scripture is just kind of, you know, I know I should read it. It's kind of a religious thing to do. And it's really hard to understand and it's boring sometimes. And Scripture is something God has given to nourish our souls, to feed us spiritually. And Scripture can build us up. And, you know, I, I get tired and worn out and sometimes discouraged. And Scripture builds us up and it fortifies our lives and it strengthens us in the inner person. Uh, it encourages us. It equips us. It brings life. And we all need that. And as he says, which can build you up and give you 
an inheritance among those, all those who are sanctified. The inheritance refers to inheriting eternal life and all that salvation entails. And it's all wrapped together. It's part of the gift of your salvation. The example, verses 33 through 35, Paul says, he speaks of his own life. He says, I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. This is his model. He didn't covet. He wasn't wrapped up in materialism. Um, He wasn't pursuing comfort. He wasn't about his image, how he looked and what people thought of him. Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands of mine, this is his example, have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Paul was a tent maker by trade as well as the Pharisee. Um, At times, Paul worked and provided 100% of his financial support and the support of those on his team. At times, he was supporting the whole team by his work, and he was doing ministry on top of that. There were times also, and we've seen it on this mission trip, where Paul worked and then received a financial gift and then focused totally on uh, sharing the gospel and teaching pretty much 24-7 because he had financial support. Verse 35 In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. And this was, Paul was an example for justice. He uses his resources to give to other people, not only to support himself and his team, but to give to other people, to help the weak and to help the under-resourced and to help those back in Jerusalem. And he says... uh, that we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Where is that found in the Gospels? It's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But Jesus said it. And the apostles reported it. And Luke records it about generosity. Um, The way of Christ is about generosity. It's not about stinginess. The way of Christ is not like the world. It's about uh, giving. Giving one's life. Making one's resources available to God. The departure comes in verses 36 through 38. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them. And then he prayed. They all wept as they embraced And kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. They accompanied him back to the ship. So Paul departs. They pray together. These grown men weep together. And they hug each other. They express their love to Paul. And Paul expresses his love for them. Okay, let's look at some lessons. Some lessons. Number one, God is still sending missionaries into all the world. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake, um, you know what? Could we go back to one of the maps? I, I miss this. It's probably around map four or five, and it's one that has Ankara. See if we can find the one that has Ankara. Oh, is it on there? Uh, try the next map. There it is. Thank you. 
I missed that one. I wanted to... This is Turkey, okay? Modern Turkey. Guess who's going to Ankara? Nick and Emily Thornson, Matt and Christina Hoffman. We're sending people here. This is the area that just north of where the Apostle Paul was. They still need the gospel today. And uh, God is still sending people today. Is he sending you? Are you available if he wants to send you? Parents, are you willing that God send your own children? Are you willing to give them? Nicole used this verse earlier. She didn't know I was going to use it. Matthew 9, 38. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into this harvest field. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. If you're a Christ follower, you should ask the Lord to send out workers. People who are going to share the gospel. People who are going to be missionaries. My question to you is, are you a Christ follower And are you praying that God will send out workers? If we're about the mission to help people connect with God, we also need to be about prayer to ignite the mission and to be involved from God's perspective. Second lesson, remember, long sermons come from great tradition. It can be dangerous. Thirdly, be careful of what happened to Eutychus. He died when he fell from the third story. The Puritan era in America, 18th century America, New England, they had a way of keeping this from happening. They had an office in the church called tithing man, sort of like a deacon. And tithing man had the job on Sunday morning to stand in the church service with a long wooden pole. And on one end was a hard knob. And it was for the males in the audience that fell asleep. So if you were a man or a boy and you dozed off, you could expect tithing a man to come up and pat you on the head or smack you on the head. However, if you were a female, they were a little kinder, the female had something soft on the other end, and it was more like a feather, and they used it to tickle the nose of the sleeping female, girl, or woman, and were able to keep people awake during worship. Fourth uh, lesson, developing leaders for the church is crucial in passing our faith from one generation to another. We've talked about this several times in the book of Acts already. And here we have Paul spending time with the leaders leaders of Ephesus. He wants to develop them. He wants to entrust them with leading the church. It's still important today. And just, I always want to say, we have 11 guys at the bridge right now that are in leadership training, and they meet every week, and they've been doing pretty much all year. And um, they care about being leaders. Second chapter, Second uh, Timothy, verse two, chapter two, verse two. Paul tells Timothy, one leader who has developed another leader. Paul, who has developed Timothy, tells Timothy, and the things you've heard from me, Paul, say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people. Reliable people are the ones who become leaders. Entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. And the faith gets passed from one generation to the next, and that's how I came to faith. 
And that's how I was discipled, is that they were faithful people who passed the Christian faith to me with some sound doctrine. Lesson number five, every Christ follower has a responsibility to keep watch over their own lives, just like the leaders. Remember, uh, Paul told the leaders, keep watch over yourselves. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight reminds us of this. He says, everyone, that's to all believers, ought to examine themselves. Self-reflection. Ask God to look at your life. Is there any, are you okay with God? Is there anything out of line? And this is something commanded before communion on every occasion. But self-examination, it's a healthy thing for your own spiritual life. Rather than somebody coming up and tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, I think you're, you're drifting away, you get a chance to examine your own life and to get realigned. First uh, John 1, 8 through 10 says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Most of us know we have sin. God has provided a way for us as followers of Christ to handle our failures. We all sin. Verse 9. If we So this is this is only for believers. This is not for an unbeliever, okay? If that's the condition, we confess our sins, he that is God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There isn't anything he can't forgive you of. There isn't anything. But it requires us to confess. It's to be real with God, to be honest and specific with Him. And He forgives and He cleanses. You get a clean slate and you get to start a new day. Which makes it possible for you now to be filled with the Holy Spirit and controlled by the Holy Spirit and yield your life to Him. But you can't do that when you got unconfessed sin that happened. Okay? Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His words are not in us. Last uh, lesson, every Christ follower has been given the same task to tell the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. Just a reminder, we've heard it many times. All of us had the same task just to, just to tell the truth. It's to be a witness. Witnesses tell the truth. What do you know? You don't have to tell what you don't know. You don't have to be the smartest person in the world. You don't have to be a walking encyclopedia about the Bible. What do you know? What is your experience? Who is Jesus what had he done for you? You can share that. That's what it means to be a witness. Acts 1.8 is a reminder. If you will, re- you will receive power, this is what he told Christ's followers in the first chapter before the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The Holy Spirit did come on them in Acts chapter 2, and he comes on everyone who places their faith in Christ. So if you are a follower of Christ, you do have the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses. That's a command and a prophecy. You will be my witnesses. That's Jesus' desire for us. To be, just to tell the truth about who he is and what he has done. Benjamin Kwashi from Nigeria tells the story of how the gospel came to his part of the country in Nigeria in 1907. The man was called Reverend Fox. He came as a professor from Cambridge University. And he walked closely with Jesus. And when he got to Nigeria, he began to lead many to Christ in this secluded, removed area. He founded a church. Within a short time, he he moved uh, six miles away and started another church. 
So many people came to faith. He wrote his brother back at Cambridge, who was a medical doctor, and he said, will you come and help? Will you come and help? The cause is so great. We need you here. We need a Reverend Fox. His brother called, died of a disease. His brother came, tried to help. and In a very short time, his brother died of the same disease. Soon, his parents were notified by the mission's agency, and they were grieved deeply. They shed many tears, and then they sold pretty much everything they had. They sold their house, and they took the money, and they gave it to the missions agency and said, we want this to go to the ministry in Nigeria where our sons gave their life. If they gave their life, we want to support their work. Reverend Fox was 32 years old. His brother was younger. These two men gave all they had for Jesus. What would you be willing to die for? Would you be willing to die the all in to offer your body as a living sacrifice? Let's stand together and pray. Father, I thank you for Acts chapter 20 and the life of the Apostle Paul and his desire not to hold anything back but to give his life and to serve you and to represent you well. That's my prayer for the bridge, that we would want to serve you and represent you well, that we would be willing to tell the truth about who Jesus is us and what he's done for us. And Father, as we uh, stand before you today, I think there are many people in this room that are willing to offer themselves to you as a living sacrifice. If that's you, just while you're standing there, would you tell God that? Yield to him for Jesus to be your Lord and for him to be the master and for you to be the servant. If you're not able to make that prayer this morning, what's keeping you from that? Is there anything that you need to do that would make that possible? Continue to grow. Continue to seek to walk with Jesus. Thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit who is in us. Thank you for his indwelling power. Thank you for uh, his strength and what he uh, does to help us grow and to become more like Jesus. Amen.